It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. As we bring you this broadcast, the Bassmaster Classic is going off at Lake Hartwell, bordering South Carolina and Georgia, and man, oh man, I wish I was there. I'm no bass pro, oh no. In fact, I've never even cashed a check in the tournaments I've fished with my best friend Rusty Johnston over the years, but I think just about everyone who attends the morning launches at the lake or the afternoon weigh-ins in Greenville, well, they're all dreaming of being in a boat or on the stage of this professional bass fishing marquee event that many call the Super Bowl of bass fishing. Plus, you get the chance to visit the Bassmaster Outdoor Expo. That's at the Convention Center in Greenville this weekend, and just like last year in Fort Worth, Texas, there will be hundreds and hundreds of exhibitors in a huge sportsman show type setting where the emphasis is on bass fishing. To all of you listening today and attending some of these events, color me jealous. But hey, maybe I'll get a chance to see some of you next March when the Classic comes to Knoxville, Tennessee. This week on America Outdoors Radio, we'll talk a little bass fishing with Walker Smith. He's the managing editor at Wired to Fish and an angler who knows a thing or two about how to catch bass as the weather changes during this pre-spawn time of year. We'll also get to talk with Ryan Sparks. He's a tournament bass angler himself who calls Oregon home, and he's also a sales rep for Shimano, which has some really nice bass rods hitting the market, along with a quality-built but very affordable steelhead fishing rod and reel combo you're definitely going to want to hear about. After that, we'll dive into the current issue of Outdoor Life, which has its trophy issue out. We'll start off talking to Tyler Friel. He calls Fairbanks, Alaska home, and in his article, Trouble on the Tundra, he talks about a petition from local subsistence hunters who want to lock everyone out who's not a local to include non-local Alaskans. They want to lock them out from hunting Alaska's biggest caribou herd during the main part of the fall hunting season. Tyler will tell you what's going on with this caribou herd that's driving this petition and whether this petition, in his opinion, has any merit. Another article you'll find in the latest edition of Outdoor Life is titled Head and Horns, and the author of this piece, Christine Peterson, joins us from Wyoming to talk about the evolution of trophy big game hunting in North America. Did you know the whole concept of trophy big game hunting in America was started as a means of conserving herds of elk, deer, pronghorn, bighorn, sheep, and other animals? It's true. Christine will tell you about that and about how the tide may be changing with more and more hunters not interested in a trophy so much as they are in getting some fresh, quality, natural meat on the dinner table. This is a really interesting chat you won't want to miss. Throw in some news about a new record fish from Georgia and a rundown of the most popular brands bought last year by hunters and recreational shooters. And I do believe we've got a great show coming your way. So let's get it started by getting Walker Smith on the phone from his home in Georgia so we can have a little chat about catching bass. We're the pre-spawn when it comes to bass fishing, and most days out there, they're pretty cold, but now and again, you get that really warm day, and how do you deal with the bass when that happens? With us here to give you some suggestions on how to deal with them or not is Walker Smith. He's with Wired to Fish, and Walker, you wrote a great article on the subject. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, buddy. It's always a pleasure. 
So the premise of your article, and it's something I think all of us as anglers have dealt with, especially as bass anglers, is you've got all these cold days and all of a sudden a warm front comes in. And it might be 60, 70 degrees, and you're excited, thinking, oh, the bass are going to move in shallow, I'm going to slay them. And it turns out to be one of the worst fishing days you've ever had. Great day on the water, but poor day of fishing. Why is that? I think there's a lot of things that contribute to it. But, you know, it's happened to me all the time, like you said, you know, just cold and miserable all winter. And then you get, you know, maybe a day or two, really pretty weather, and you think you're going to go bust them, and it's horrible. So a big deal with that, in my opinion, has uh, what I've realized over the years has been when I mess up like that on these warm fronts, I don't pay enough attention to the uh, overnight low temperatures. You know, it, it's easy to look at the forecast and say, man, it's going to be 60 degrees today, or man, it's going to be 70, whatever it is. Well, that's great, but if it's 28 degrees at night, that negates that warm weather during the day primarily. So it's really important to look at those low overnight temperatures. That's the biggest thing I look at this time of year. When it comes to fishing on days like this, do you essentially just revert to what you're already doing when it comes to colder water bass fishing? You just ignore the fact that it might be really nice out if the nighttime temps were around freezing? I guess to answer your question, like I'm doing the same thing this time of year, no matter if it's 40 or no matter if it's 70, for the most part, let's say that, because uh, there's no absolutes in bass fishing. But these warm fronts, I look for the third day of a warm front. So days one and two, eh, they'll be okay. But if you get a warm front for three days, that third day is when you want to get out there, and that's when you want to start going shallow, hitting shoreline grass, uh, any other type of vegetation, hitting laydowns, leading in to short pockets that are facing south. It could be potential spawning areas for bass. It doesn't take much for a bass to want to spawn. And, you know, three warm days in February, March, April, I mean, that's all it takes. This comes down to acclimation. It's really all about acclimating to the temperature, and you need that third day for that to happen, don't you? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think for the first day or two, of any, whether it's a warm front, cold front, whatever it is, I always explain it to people is like I feel like the bass kind of like get a headache and are kind of like hung over if that makes sense like it's just <laughs> they, they don't feel right and just kind of like how when a big weather front comes some humans they get you know headache or their knee will hurt or their back will hurt I do think that somehow I'm not a biologist but I think that somehow happens to bass and that third day I feel like everything calms down okay wow it, it's really getting spring let's go Let's talk about cold fronts. For years, I was one of those people that believed, and in the back of my mind, I think I still do, that when a cold front comes in, the bass bite shuts off. That's not necessarily true, is it? No. no. Again, I don't know how this works or why it does, but on these cold front days, especially this time of year when these bass start packing on eggs, for the pre-spawn, they know they're, they're about to go through the rigors of the spawn eventually. So they need to get their bodies built up and have enough energy to sustain all of that stress that they're about to go through. And these cold front days, man, like, they're miserable to be out in. They're windy. They're cold. I mean, you know, spitting rain, it stinks. It's not fun. But I have seen probably over half the biggest bass I've ever seen in my life have come on terrible cold front days this time of year. 
Fascinating stuff. Let's shift gears. Let's talk a little bit about Wired to Fish. I mean, I'm a big fan of wiredtofish.com, and, you know, I subscribed to your newsletter. That's where I got this article. But you've got a whole lot more than articles on your website, don't you? Oh, absolutely. We have an outstanding and award-winning video team. They produce just incredible videos, you know, be better bass fishermen. Um, They're also very good at multi-species um, so pretty much if you want to catch it and it swims in fresh water, our videos are going to have content on that for you. We also, on the written side, review different fishing products. Um, we test thousands of products probably per year, and we provide really honest feedback on them for our viewers and readers. And, yeah, I mean, again, if you've ever wondered about something in fishing, you can go to Wired to Fish, and I can almost guarantee you it'll be there. Well, there you go, folks. Wired2fish.com. That's wired, the number two, fish.com. Check it out. It's definitely one of the best resources out there for bass anglers and just about any other freshwater angler, too. Uh, You definitely want to be checking this out on a regular basis like I do and check out their YouTube channel as well and Wired2Fish TV. Walker, always a pleasure to get you on the air and have you share your wisdom with our listeners on America Outdoors Radio. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate everybody's listening. We've been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in southeast Alaska for a while now, and there's a reason. They are the only Alaska Lodge we talk about in this show. It's because they're truly Alaska's best lodge. The adventure starts with a float plane ride from Ketchikan, after which you'll get the chance to experience some of the best hospitality, food, and wonderful people you'll ever meet. Wildlife is abundant, from bears and deer to eagles and whales, and let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing. Halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Country hunters and anglers. You may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display, or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants, and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, WorkSharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting and stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com. 
Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. Our next stop is the last frontier. We are heading north to Alaska. That's where Tyler Friel lives. And he wrote a great article that's in the current edition of Outdoor Life magazine called Trouble on the Tundra. It turns out there's a move afoot to eliminate hunting opportunities in Alaska for caribou if you don't live in the specific area where these caribou live. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Let's start off talking about the specific caribou herd this affects. What herd is it? Where does this herd live? And why are we seeing some potential changes regarding this herd? Well, we're talking about the Western Arctic caribou herd, which is one of the biggest caribou herds in the state of Alaska. They inhabit, you know, basically the northwest quadrant of Alaska from all the way up from the North Slope on the Arctic Ocean. And typically they'll migrate down through the Brooks Range into the Kotzebue, no attack river drainages, and even out onto the Seward Peninsula sometimes. And I think they have hit a peak at about 400,000 animals in the last decade or so. The herd has been in decline. So what's the herd at now? And where should it be historically? Well, the herd right now is of the the most recent and in, in the, the subject that we're talking about, some of these efforts to close have started even before when, when the previous herd survey showed the numbers, I think at around 240,000 animals. And then now the most recent survey showed them at 188,000. And with the margin of error, it could be a little less or could it be, it could be up to about 200,000 animals. And According to the management plan for that herd, which is kind of developed by what they call the Western Arctic Caribou Herd Working Group, which is kind of a conglomerate of agencies and user groups, the 200,000 is kind of the threshold where they start looking at potentially more intensive management and, you know, potentially restricting some harvest and whatnot. So it's, the numbers are right about there right now. What is the reason for this decline? Well, there's different causes that people can attribute. You know, some people are blaming global warming and change in browse. Really, this herd and all caribou herds have a history of dramatic booms and declines. It's just an oscillating population cycle that does have natural declines. There hasn't been any studies or specific information to indicate that this is other than just a natural decline in the cycle. You know, considering the amount of people that utilize the herd, they set that number at 200,000 as potentially to take management steps just to ensure that the people that need them have meat available to them. This is important. There are, according to your article, 40 subsistence hunting communities in the area where this herd roams, and they depend on the caribou herd for meat every year. And they have petitioned to have all non-local hunters for both caribou and moose in this area out of there. And we're not just talking about hunters in the lower 48, are we? No, no. We're talking about basically anyone who the language is anyone who's not a federally qualified subsistence user, which when you break it down, basically means if you don't live locally in that area, you would not be able to hunt there. And the the time frame for which they're pushing for the closure is the general time when non-residents fly up there to go caribou hunting. It would leave it open for other residents at less popular times, but it's really targeted at the fall hunting season when most of the people are flying up there to go caribou hunting. How many caribou in a normal year are taken by subsistence hunters versus non-local hunters that are up there looking for their trophy caribou? 
It's pretty minuscule. The state has made statements that it's basically zero impact. The non-locals and non-residents, just in general, total non-locals only kill, it varies, you know, but sometimes around 250 caribou and all bulls. And in that ultimately adds up to about 2 to 5% of the harvest. Local user groups, subsistence groups, um, they estimate take about 10000 per year out of the herd. Okay, that is something there. But I've got to ask, you know, the old phrase, cutting off your nose despite your face, comes to mind. Don't these hunters that come up to hunt caribou, don't they inject a lot of money into the local economy between guides and air taxis and groceries and everything else? I mean, wouldn't this hurt them more than help them to cut out all these hunters? You know, it might. And I'm not sure the exact level that a lot of the individual communities see of money put in. It certainly injects money into the state economy. And a lot of this issue, the, that area in particular has a long history of kind of conflict between user groups and what's brought this about or at least the stated issue is that you know as the caribou herd has declined slightly they've changed their timing and some of their migration patterns and it's become harder for some local communities to access the caribou and the scapegoat that's put forward is non-local hunters hunting them sometimes you know a hundred miles away a long ways away from where from where the local hunters are going to be hunting them. So, you know, the, the theory your scapegoat put forward is that non-local hunters are disrupting the migration. But even talking to the biologists that study that herd, there hasn't been any indication that that's true. And even the National Park Service, I believe, did some studies to show or indicated that hunting pressure isn't affecting the movement of the herds in a large scope. Obviously, you know, on the scale of, you know, if a herd of caribou is moving towards you and someone a mile away, you know, shoots a bull out of it, it may divert them around where you're at right then. But as far as large scale changes in their migration patterns, there's no indication that there's any truth to that. And unfortunately, it's an issue that is cropping up more and more in the state. You know, everyone, I think, reasonably believes that local subsistence hunters, they have a, a right and they need to have reasonable access to that resource and their priority needs to take precedence over, you know, sport hunters or non-local hunters that are traveling in. But by all indications, it's not a matter of the resource being affected by the non-local hunters. It seems to be kind of a scapegoat. So when it comes to this petition to stop non-local hunting of caribou here, who has it been submitted to and, and what can our listeners do to make their voices heard on this subject? Yeah, it's been submitted by a regional council to the Federal Subsistence Board, which in Alaska, generally the game is managed on the state level, but there's also the federal subsistence set of regulations and a regulatory board that they've sent this to. And I believe their board meeting is this spring you know, on outdoor life. I've been trying to keep up on posting information for public commentary on these different issues as they come up. The net, uh, but that's going to be heard it was postponed for a year last year because there was no support and there wasn't supporting information to, to go forward with the closure. So they've asked for, you know, to revisit it this spring. And there's also a few others popping up in Alaska, you know, with blacktail deer and there's one for doll sheep. And a lot of this stuff can be put forward by a few individuals or one individual. And a lot of people view it as some entities or people trying to use the Federal Subsistence Board to subvert the state management and keep non-local hunters out. And not that that would always be a bad thing, but it just needs to be scientific-based.
I agree. That's the North American model of conservation is that it all is supposed to be scientifically based. So if you want to keep up on this, folks, and read the rest of this article, Trouble in the Tundra, check out the trophy edition of Outdoor Life magazine. You'll find it at OutdoorLife.com. Just subscribe and read it today. Tyler, thanks for keeping us abreast of this situation on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you very much. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. And if you are hunting this fall, you know the importance of a sharp knife. You're going to need it for gutting that animal, butchering that animal, taking the hide off that animal, and there's a good chance... You have to sharpen it more than once while you're doing these things in the field. That's why a pocket knife sharpener or the guided field sharpener from WorkSharp are great items to have with you. Whether you're after deer, elk, pronghorn, or bear, a sharp knife helps you get things done after you drop that animal. Look for WorkSharp products at sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you, or online at WorkSharpTools.com. That's WorkSharpTools.com. In today's news, I'm cooking a brisket. Let's go to Jill at my house to see how it's going. This is your house and you brought me and the crew to check on your brisket? That's correct, Jill. How's it looking? This is a Camp Chef Woodwind Wi-Fi. You know you, you can check your cook right from your phone, right? I didn't know that was an option, Jill. Well, never mind. But before you leave, can you feed the dog? What? No, no. When we get back, why is my check engine light on? The answer may shock me. You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Christine Peterson on the line. She has got a really interesting article in the latest edition of Outdoor Life magazine. It's called Head and Horns, and it's all part of the trophy edition of this magazine. You should check it out at OutdoorLife.com. Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. This was a real deep dive into just the whole history and present-day situation regarding trophy hunting. Let's talk about the origin of trophy hunting in America and how it actually helped us conserve big game, which were in serious decline at the time. Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive to, to talk about it now, but in the early, mid, late 1800s in the U.S., there was an incredible slaughter of game everywhere. It really is. It is hard to overstate the destruction when Europeans arrived here in North America. Bison went from 30 million animals to about 1,000. Bighorn sheep from 1.5 million to 85,000. You know, elk from 10 million to 41,000. Pronghorn, 40 million to 12,000. Turkeys were gone east of the Mississippi. So it, it really is hard to overstate how bad things had gotten. So then some of the, the leaders of the time, President Roosevelt and Grinnell, they looked around and thought, something has to change. We have to fix this or we are not going to have anything left. And so then as they thought about moving forward, they started encouraging people to only shoot the biggest animals. And, and that, that was what really made a hunter. And so then instead of you know, go outside and shoot everything that moves and eat it or harvest it for market or do whatever that way. Instead of that, it was, we'll hold out and only shoot one. 
And that was the beginning of our game laws and the conservation of all the game species that we have now. Very interesting history there indeed. And, you know, that obviously really took hold. And if you don't believe me, folks, go to your local sportsman show. There's almost always a place to score your trophy rack. And many hunters, they, they dream of getting their trophy animal, whether it be a deer or an elk or a moose or otherwise in the Boone and Crockett record book. But the notion of hunting for the biggest and baddest trophy animal, that began to change a few years ago in the world of public opinion, and you first started seeing that with trophy hunting in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure everybody listening remembers Cecil the lion and the controversy that went along with that. And hunting in Africa is tricky, especially for the general public to understand. There's a lot of money that hunters bring to Africa and bring to conservation in order to chase these big species. But there's also a sense that hunters are then killing the biggest lions or species like that, that there just aren't honestly that many anymore. And so it's easy for the public to grab onto that and say, this is not okay. And then that ends up translating to species here and wildlife here and this idea that, well, holding out and waiting to shoot the biggest bighorn sheep or the biggest elk or the biggest whitetail isn't ethical. There's a lot of folks that feel like that. And so that sense of chasing the biggest, baddest animals has translated to here and people just feeling uneasy about hunting in general. And and a lot of translation here has come from a, a general disconnect with hunting in general from the public that when only 4% of the general public hunts, there's a lot of folks who just don't understand it and don't know that much about it. But in a sense, we've almost come full circle because uh, you quote a poll in your article where overwhelming majority was against the notion of trophy hunting of the people polled. 51% were okay with hunting, but again, 49% weren't. But 84% of the people polled, they were perfectly fine with putting meat on the table in terms of subsistence hunting. And we're starting to see that now, where a lot of individuals are joining our ranks as hunters, especially during COVID, and that's a good thing. But what motivates many of them is not begging a trophy, but instead harvesting wild game and making it a a literal field-to-table experience. Yeah, and that has been really where you've seen the resurgence in hunting when there's been a lot of hand-wringing over the years about the decline in hunters and where there have been gains made and where there were some gains made, especially as uh, the core traditional hunters started to age out, were in younger folks, a lot of them women, interested in hunting to feed their families and hunting to fill their freezers and that it's a source of organic meat and, you know, it's more sustainable and you know what the animal was doing before it made its way into your freezer and onto your plate. And that that has become where hunting has been headed, especially more recently. And not that folks aren't looking for a big animal too, but that there's a lot more of this emphasis on meat hunting or pot hunting, as George Ford Grinnell called it 150 years ago, hunting for the pot and now meat hunting. But that has also led to this interesting conversation of, well, what is trophy hunting? And that was something that was one of the most interesting parts of the story to me was this definition of the term. And trophy hunting to many people, especially non-hunters, is holding out for a big animal, that that is what a trophy is. And some of the folks I talked to said that, you know, not necessarily. And Eric Morris, who's a producer and host of non Outdoorsman TV, said, 
His quote was, we should not get into the habit of determining for someone else what is and is not a trophy. A trophy is in the eye of the beholder. And he said, for a lot of people, I mean, shooting a doe, especially if it's your first time out, or even if it's not, but shooting a really healthy doe might be just as much of a trophy as shooting a really big buck. And so instead of talking about trophy hunting just as this exclusive pursuit of the biggest, talking about trophy hunting as filling whatever our needs are, our interests are, and sometimes that isn't the biggest rack. Very insightful by Eric Morrisera. Uh, we both know him. He's a good guy and, and a great television show, folks. And I guess the last question for you is this. You didn't cover this in the article, but I just want your opinion. You're a Wyoming-based writer. You're a mother. You're a hunter. You're an angler. You know, looking into your crystal ball, how do you see hunting evolve in the next 20 years? Are we going to continue to get more people in the sport? Is it going to trend more towards the pot and meat hunters as opposed to trophy hunters? Is that what you're thinking? I think that's tough. As a journalist, I ask these questions. I ask people to look in their crystal ball. I don't look at a crystal ball. I mean, the last line of the story is it's going to take hunters, all hunters, to protect those remaining wild places and the critters that live there. And I think the point is that there will always be people who hold out for bigger animals for whatever reasons they want to. Maybe it's a pride and maybe it's because they've hunted a long time and they don't honestly need that much meat, maybe, and they, and they have a special tag and they think, I'm going to wait. And if I don't get an animal, I don't. And if I get something really big, then that's great. And that can be an accomplishment. I think there's certainly always going to be folks that fall into that camp. I do think the bulk of the hunters probably are going to be in it for meat. But I also think that that oversimplifies the hunting experience for most people, that that hunting isn't just divided into these two camps of either pursuing a really big animal or looking for something to put in my freezer, that there are all these other many nuanced reasons that we hunt that aren't just size of animal. And and I think that that is becoming a lot more a part of the conversation now, just the connection with land and experience outdoors and being more a part of our natural surroundings. And I think there's a growing interest in that that's also drawing people to hunting. So I think that it, it's always hard to say what's going to happen in the future, but I think as long as we keep having nuanced conversations about what hunting is and why we hunt with each other, I think that we'll keep moving forward. Christine, I'd have to say you're pretty insightful yourself. And folks, if you want to check out our article, Heads and Horns, again, go to OutdoorLife.com, subscribe, and check out the Trophy Edition. It's the latest edition from Outdoor Life. This article and a lot of other ones are tackling the subject of trophy hunting, and they're all a very good read. Christine, thanks for making the time today on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you. I appreciate it. Earlier this week, Texas celebrated their Independence Day. They became independent of Mexico as a republic back in 1836. And in honor of that, Henry Repeating Arms is showing off the Henry Texas Tribute Edition. It's an absolutely beautiful golden boy rifle, and it's all about Texas. It's got the state prominently displayed on the stock of the rifle and the word Texas on the forearm. It's an absolutely beautiful 22 caliber lever action rifle. It's a golden boy. It'll look great on display in your home. It'll also shoot straight and be reliable, just like all of the rifles made by Henry Repeating Arms. And this one is also made in America. Check it out at henryusa.com. Just look for the Henry Texas Tribute Edition. That website again, henryusa.com. And don't forget to ask for your free decals and sticker while you're there.
Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 150 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a classic look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstances, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the darkest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true. To provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities, Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. That's huntofalifetime.org. Why book at Sportsman's Cove Lodge? Why is Alaska like no other place on earth? It hasn't changed in thousands of years. From the way you get here on a float plane to the way you go out with the guides and the boats, it's just a professional experience. And I said, this is as good as it gets. I said, if you can't catch fish here, you can't catch fish anywhere. Your experience with us will leave you speechless. Book now at alaskasbestlodge.com. Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants to give you even more incredible savings during the January bedding sale. 50% off comforters, quilts, blankets. You know that two-inch mattress topper? 50% off sheets and sleepwear. All you have to do is go to MyPillow.com, scroll down. You'll see on the left side a box that says Radio Listener Special. You click on that, and then you see even more specials. In addition to the ones I just mentioned, make sure you enter promo code KEN. That's my name, K-E-N, KEN. You don't have to mention my full name, Ken Matthews, but just put KEN in there. Plus, there's an overstock sale on couch pillows, not couch potatoes, pillows, individual towels, select pillowcases. You could get a full body pillow, that's for your entire body, for only $39.99. More great savings from MyPillow.com. Made in America, luxurious, quality. Check it out at MyPillow.com, promo code KEN. Next up on America Outdoors Radio, we got another product review for you. I've got Ryan Sparks with me. Now, Ryan is a tournament bass fisherman from the state of Oregon who's fished all over the western U.S., and he is also a sales rep for Shimano and for G. Loomis, two very famous companies in the industry. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again, John. I love to be here. So, caught up with you at the Pacific Northwest Sportsman Show and got to see all the good stuff that was in the Shimano and G. Loomis booth. And one thing that caught my eye were these really, really nice rods that you have for bass fishing. Exactly what do you have there? And tell our listeners more about it. 
Yeah, so I mean, our two more most popular ones nowadays are the new redesigned Corrado rod. A lot of people get it kind of confused with the Corrado reel just because it's been so popular. It's kind of the mainstay of the Shimano brand, especially for low profile reels. But for the bass fishing industry, we got the Corrado rod, which is kind of redesigned, kind of bamped up. It's got the Spiral X wrapping on it, and it comes in at a price point just over like 150 bucks. So for retail, that's good. Okay, so let's talk about a couple things there. Let's unpack this. Now, this is a baitcaster. Do you also have them for spinning reels in the Corrado? Correct. The Corrado, we have the full line, pretty much everything down to a 610, like drop shot rod, your more finesse spinning reel, all the way up to something heavy around the seven and a half foot mark for flipping and pitching, that sort of stuff. All right. Now, the spiral wrap. Why don't you explain to our listeners what that means and how it differs from a lot of other rods out there? Yeah, so the Spiral X wrapping is just the process that they use when wrapping the rod, and it gives us this really good color um, finish to the rod, and that comes in all kind of our higher-end Shimano rods, everything from that Corrado rod all the way up to our Poison Adreno, which is our top-of-the-line rod for our Shimano rods in our lineup. Now, there's another bass rod from Shimano we should talk about, too. Yeah, the Zodius line, which is our most popular line in our Shimano series, comes at a really good price point, and it's got the full lineup of rods, everything down to a 610 for your drop shot fishing and your spinning rod stuff, all the way up to, we have a 711, um, which is our new glass rod series, which will be our new cranking rod, and some of the heavy uh, flipping pitching rods as well. So two questions. What is the price point for the Zodius? The Zodius is from 200 about up to about 250 kind of that range. I got a question about fiberglass versus glass. Mm-hmm. Okay, you mentioned you're going to have a glass rod. It's going to be a crankbait rod. What are the benefits of a glass rod over a graphite rod? Yeah, so it's kind of like the old school way. The glass rod is a lot more parabolic, so that's why they kind of go with that. And it's for more your treble hook, moving baits, uh, just to keep the fish hooked. With those treble hooks, they're going to be thrashing back and forth. And you think with three hooks on it, it, you'd have better odds. But with that, that softer parabolic rod... Hold on, hold on. This is AM radio. You got to explain what parabolic means. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So parabolic rod is basically more of your bend. So think of a fast action rod. The bend's going to be more towards the tip. The parabolic rod is coming more bend down towards the handle, halfway point of the rod. So it's basically thinking of your slow action rods, a lot softer style rod. That helps keep the fish on. Correct. Yeah. Especially for your treble hook style baits, something that's moving. And the other benefit to that is when the fish is reacting to it, going to get it. If you're going to set the hook too soon it's got a little more give and allows that fish to come up and eat that bait so like a topwater situation where everybody always sets mm-hmm. the hook too soon yeah yeah a topwater is perfect for that too just gives it even if it's just that split second just gives it a little more time for that fish to eat the bait when is the time that you would want a graphite rod over a glass rod? What kind of techniques would be fishing for bass where graphite's better? Yeah, so your graphite rods um, are blended more towards the fast action, your um, extra fast action, those style rods where you don't want the give in it. So more of your flipping style, your pitching style, Texas rig baits, single hook baits, where you want to drive that hook home in that fish and get it out of the cover. That's where those rods come into play. That was a very good education folks all right one more thing we want to talk about you are from the pacific northwest and this is exciting stuff because Mm -hmm. shimano is known for its high quality rods and reels and they've got a new steelhead combo coming out for what a price point of a hundred dollars for a that's amazing tell us more yeah so it's our new symmetry package so everybody in the northwest knows what a symmetry reel is it's kind of your price point that is more friendly Um, it's still a great package reel so we comboed it up with the rod so we're going to have the rod and reel everything 
from a nine foot all the way up to a ten and a half foot rod. Is this a three thousand series spinning reel or a four thousand? So we'll have both. We'll have the three thousand series in a nine foot medium, and then we'll have a four thousand series, the ten and a half medium, a nine foot heavy, and a six and a half foot medium, which is like you know your perfect bead fishing rod for steelhead. This is just great. I mean, I'll be honest. When I think of Shimano, I love their products, but a lot of times, for a lot of us, the price point's out of reach. If you're a steelhead angler, or maybe you're after pink salmon, or, you know, some of the smaller salmon... These are great price points that anybody can really afford. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if you're going out just beginning to get into sea live fishing, which I get a lot of questions like, what do you want to start off with? Um, what do I use just to go out and kind of get into the sport? So, I mean, these are a great package deal. They're set up. We have them built just to the specifications of being able to go out and do that. When is this Shimano Symmetry salmon and steelhead combo for $109 going to be available in stores? Yeah, so we're already starting to see them come up. It's all with production right now as far as everything else. I know a few of them are about to hit the Northwest, so hopefully any day now. Well, there you go, folks. Shimano for bass, Shimano for steelhead, Shimano for salmon. Look for Shimano products at a sporting goods store near you. You're going to find them in all the quality sporting goods stores. And get ready to go fishing with some quality gear. Ryan, thanks so much for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate it. This portion of the show was brought to you by our friends at Cena Sea Seafoods. That's the company that delivers delicious, wild-caught Alaskan seafood right to your door. Everything from Copper River sockeye salmon to halibut to sable fish and even king crab legs. Better still, they are offering a 10% discount to our listeners. If you want to take advantage of that, go to SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com, and put in the promo code OUTDOORSRADIO. Once you do that, you get 10% off your entire order. The website again, SinaSea.com, and the promo code for 10% off, OUTDOORSRADIO. Next up, a little outdoors news. Turns out Southwick Associates surveyed 11,000 hunters and recreational shooters last year to see what they were buying to use at the range or in the field. And as far as the most popular brands of 2021 were, here they are. When it came to rifles, Savage was the big winner. That was the most purchased brand. Air rifles and air guns, Crossman, I figured that, but didn't figure Sig Sauer for this category. When it came to handgun ammunition, which was hard to find last year, Blazer, makers of that practice ammo, they came out on top. Rifle ammunition, that would be Federal. Reloading components, Hornaday. Scopes, Vortex came out on top. And Red Dot Sights, Sig Sauer again making an appearance as the most bought Red Dot Sight brand. When it comes to trail cameras, Cutaback was the winner. Game feeders, Moultrie, no surprise there. And as for scent, that would be dead downwind. Benches and rests, Caldwell, clay targets, good old white flyer, gun cleaning, good old hoppies, and both magazines and slings, that would be Magpul. Finally, shooting sticks were Primos, and the most bought brand of choke tubes, well, those were Carlson choke tubes. And now it's time for my favorite segment of the show, where we get to talk about a lucky angler who hauled in a big one. It's record fish time. 
If you are looking to hook into a big hickory shad, the place to go is the Ogeechee River in Georgia, which has given up two state record shad in just over a year's time. According to the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, the latest record shad was caught by Timmy Woods of Kite, who was fishing the Ogeechee when he reeled in a 2-pound, 10-ounce shad, breaking the previous year-old record, which weighed 2 pounds, 3 ounces. Hickory shad and their cousins, the American shad, spend most of their time in the ocean but come back to rivers to spawn. In Georgia, that spawn takes place from January until May, so there are a few other big ones waiting to be caught there. As for how to catch them, a small curly-tailed grub will usually do the trick, and both a 1-8 or a 1-16-ounce jig will work just fine for that. As for what to do with those shad, some people will bake them, others will can them, and others use them for bait because they are really an oily fish. Whatever you do, though, Don't make the mistake I made. Don't smoke them. I literally ruined an electric smoker I had because I smoked shad in it. The oil from those shads saturated the walls and the racks of that smoker, and I could never get the smell out again. Had to throw the whole thing away. However, I digress. Shad fishing is fun, and catching a big shad is a real treat, especially if it's a state record. Way to go, Timmy. Congratulations on your new record. We've got to wrap things up, but it is nice to be in the month of March. There's a lot of things to look forward to. Fishing, first and foremost. Can't wait to get my bass boat out on the water. And I think I've got some trout fishing I'll be doing at some area lakes as well. Here's hoping you get to do some fishing and maybe some scouting for the turkey season that's coming up quick. Until next time, here's hope that you are blessed. Here's hope you stay healthy and do remember this. It is your country and you're outdoors, so get out there and enjoy it.